A warm welcome to all who join us. Today I have my Canada mug. Wednesday was Canada Day, and we need to be praying for this nation. How do you think about life in Canada? Life on earth, for that matter. Life wherever you live. I'm going to borrow an analogy from Francis Chan. This piece of the rope here, the red part, represents your life on earth. And this represents life eternal. It just keeps going. In his book, The Infinite Game, Simon Sinek, he talks about finite games and infinite games. Finite games have a definite beginning and a definite end. There are clear rules to play by and agreed upon objective, and at the end of the game, you know the score. You know who wins. Games like football, hockey, and basketball. But life is not a finite game. It is a journey. It is the ultimate infinite game. It has no time horizon. It has no end. Sometimes we played the game of life as if it were a finite game. We try to get everything out of this life, accomplish as much as possible, experience as much as possible, right into our retirement. We live as if 60, 70, 80, 90 years on earth is all there is. When we're young, we try to make all the right decisions and tick off all the right boxes so that we can live the most perfect life possible, at least better than those around us. And as we grow older, we try to ensure that in the last chapter of the red tape, we are as healthy, wealthy, and free as possible. We often live to get the most out of this very finite segment of life. Look at how David, the songwriter of Psalm 16, approaches life. Psalm 16, verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. He begins with a prayer. Psalm 16 is probably written in the midst of personal crisis. David expresses his confidence in God. God, I'm asking you to preserve my life because you are my only refuge, my only protection. In Psalm 17, David prays a similar prayer. Verse 7 of Psalm 17. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. We naturally protect the pupil of our eyes. David says, God, Protect me as a person would protect the apple of their eye. It's an endearing metaphor for those most cherished. David is saying, God, show your affection for me as one you truly love. In verse 2, David writes, I say to the Lord. Lord is written in capital letters. This is the way translators indicate that the word is the proper name for God, Yahweh. It appears again in verse 5, 7, and 8. 
The revelation of God's name is not to be taken for granted. It's a gift because it reveals who he is, his character. And what does Yahweh mean? The root of the word is, I am, Yahweh. He defines what it means to be. He always was, is, and always will be. He has no beginning and no end. Everything that is not him depends on him to exist. All of creation, every living thing, and every person. He defines what it means to be true and good and beautiful. His name, Yahweh, means all of that and more. In verse 2, David says, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Notice that the second occurrence of the word Lord is not capitalized. David is saying, Yahweh, you are my Adonai. Adonai means master, ruler, owner, sovereign. David is saying, God, I submit to you. You are my master. I'm your servant. He concludes verse 2 with a really bold statement. Yahweh, I have no good apart from you. You are the reason for my existence. I'm completely dependent on you. I cannot prosper without your favor. I have nothing good in this short life on earth, this short life apart from you. I need you desperately in this red tape season. Openly, unashamedly, David is proclaiming, God is my master. That's a profound statement. David then shares openly who he wants to hang out with and be influenced by while on earth. Verse 3 of chapter 16, Psalm 16. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. David delights in being with saints. Well, who are they? Saints are people who confess with David, God is my refuge. He's my master. He's my all. People who are on the same journey. People who openly and unashamedly embrace their privilege of being a member of God's family. The apple of his eye. They know God is true and good and wonderful. And they want to become like him, no matter what the cost. They delight in God and his word, as we heard last week through Pastor Brody's message on Psalm 1. They do not take God for granted. During this COVID-19 season, I would encourage us, strongly encourage us, to truly value our relationships with people who are on this journey to know God and become like him. These friendships are invaluable, not only in this season, but in every season of life. When we are playing the infinite game, we really need to pay attention to who is journeying with us. God did not create us to walk alone. We need others. So if you are not in a discipleship group or a life group, find one. Contact a friend who is in one. Contact Discipleship Ministries. Get connected. Press the Get Connected button. (laughs) In verse 4, David laments the path of those who take God for granted. They claim to trust in Yahweh, but they also enthusiastically run after other gods for help. They want the best of both worlds. They want double protection in a time of crisis. Their faith is elastic. Yes, 
Yahweh is Adonai. But I also have a few other options for support. David knows their anguish, anxiety, and insecurity will only increase. Imagine living in the ancient world where you would trust in God, kind of, but also trust in other gods. To which God should I pray? Have I spoken to the right God? Have I performed the right ritual? Idolatry is completely inconsistent with confidence in Lord as master, in the Lord who holds all things in his hands. Imagine living in today's world where you trust in God, kind of, but you also trust in other things and people that you have idolized. Most of us are are too sophisticated to make images of other gods using wood and stone. Rather, for us, an idol is anything we think determines or has control over our well-being. We are capable of making an idol of almost anything. Money, family, friends, health, government, a game, a sports team, and the worst idol of all, self. Oh, I have determined my destiny. I have made myself rich. I constructed my identity. I, I, I. When our world is shaken, our emotions tell us where our trust lies. If we are in despair because of the loss of something longed for, the distancing of people we care for, the instability of our national institutions, we have made those things and those people into idols. If we idolize ourselves, we should know that we are limited in wisdom and power. Self-idolatry is the ultimate anxiety driver. As David affirms, those who run after other gods find trouble without end. David refuses to participate in idolatrous practices. He so detests idolatry that he will not even mention the names of other gods. He openly and unashamedly declares, God is my everything. After expressing his abhorrence of idolatry, David declares unashamedly the name of the God he has chosen to not only mention with his lips, but to worship wholeheartedly. Yahweh, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup, verse 5. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. The words portion and cup refer to God's provision. God is David's daily sustenance. That is to say, all that he needs in this red tape season of life. Jesus says something similar about himself in John 6, verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus has all we need for life. In verses 5 and 6, the words portion, lot, lines, inheritance, they draw from the allocation of the land into family plots when Israel possessed the promised land. When Israel entered the land of Canaan, land was allotted according to the tribes, clans, and families. You can read about this in the books of Numbers and Joshua. But note this. Something really fascinating happened with the tribe of Levi. 
They did not receive land as other tribes did, but they were given cities of refuge to inhabit, and their true inheritance was God himself. Yahweh promised to be their portion. And the Lord said to Aaron, a quote from Numbers 18.20, And the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and inheritance among the people of Israel. If we could choose between a really nice piece of property for this life on earth and an intimate relationship with God, now and forever, what would we choose? If we were to choose something other than God for this life, why would we? What do we place most value on right now? A house, a property, a relationship, children, a financial inheritance from parents? David's reflection in Psalm 16 goes beyond having land in Canaan. The promised land for him is a metaphor for being in relationship with God. God is his most valuable relationship. For him, Yahweh is more worthy of interest and attention and devotion than all else. David openly and unashamedly declares what he has chosen. God, Yahweh, is my chosen inheritance. He writes in verse 6, The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. God has been good to him. He has the best inheritance ever, relationship with God himself. He's playing the ultimate infinite game. He knows where true fulfillment is found. On Father's Day, I had a good, long conversation with my father. It was almost 93. We spent some time reflecting on his experience as a father. Four sons, four daughters-in-law, 14, great, 14 grandchildren, and very soon, 17 great-grandchildren. My father was filled with gratitude. He admitted some errors along the way. And I replied, Dad, we never get it all right. We always live in a direction. And then he said, yes. It is all by God's grace. It's all due to his goodness. Definitely not mine. My father reads widely. One of the things I enjoy about talking to him is that he's always retelling the stories of the books he has read. During this COVID-19 season, his movements have been restricted. The last time I asked him what he was reading, he said with a, a big smile, a really good book, right? The Bible. He has chosen his inheritance. For those of us who follow Jesus, God is our inheritance. Paul writes this in Ephesians, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That's Ephesians 1. As disciples of Jesus, we have God as our Father and Provider, Jesus as our Savior, Lord, and Shepherd, the Holy Spirit as our Counselor and Teacher. And the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of life forever with God. More about this in a moment. For now, 
Just remember, the greatest inheritance in this life is intimate relationship with God himself, the ground of all existence. In verses 5 and 6, David's greatest joy is not God's gifts, his blessings, what God does for him, but God himself. Then in verses 7 through 11, David shares the gifts of having God as his inheritance. Verse 7 of chapter 16. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. David praises God, even blesses God. God needs nothing from him, but David loves God so much, he desires to give something back. He expresses gratitude for God's good gifts. The first gift mentioned is the gift of God's counsel, day and night. By day, he can live wisely. God even instructs his heart at night. Other translations are in the dark nights or in the night seasons. The Spirit of God is present to counsel and teach him in every moment, whether he is awake or asleep. Because God is present, providing counsel, David will not be shaken or unnerved. He has a secure foundation. God's presence in his life calms him, secures him. On a number of occasions, I have told the story of P.K., a friend who works in a restricted access region of Southeast Asia. On a recent Zoom call, he shared what he was doing during COVID-19. I quote him, We go to every village and stand on the street corners. We tell the people, no matter what happens, God still loves you. He goes on, Like the whole world, we have hardships right now. First, There is the economy. There are no jobs. On top of that, tribal people in rural areas do not have enough food to eat or even water to drink. On top of that, there is persecution of believers. And now, on top of that, there is the COVID-19 virus. End of quote. P.K., he sees the deep needs and fears of those around him, and he reaches out with unshaken faith and a bag of rice. Where does this confidence come from? Well, P.K. is no stranger to hardship. Having been imprisoned for his faith numerous times, he has experienced the joy of God's presence in prison, in refugee camps, in Southeast Asia, and also in middle-class North America. He will not be shaken or unnerved. David was also unshaken by unforeseen circumstances because he had set the Lord before himself. He was intentional. He kept his eyes focused on God. The Lord, Yahweh, was his guide. He read his word. He meditated on it. And because he set the Lord before himself, David knew that God was with him at his right side, (laughs) strengthening him. Don McLeod, our Willingdon facilities manager, secured this rope for me. The rope is a three-strand standard lay. In the world of sailors, this has always been the best. Two strands are not quite enough. When the rope has four strands, not enough of the strands touch each other. The four-strand is not as strong as the three-strand. As followers of Jesus... We have the Father, the Son, 
and the Holy Spirit with us. The strongest rope possible securing us in this red tape season and forever. We can declare with David openly and unashamedly, God is my strength. Trellises are common plant supports used in fruit, vegetable, and flower gardens. The trellis is a framework that enables the plant to get off the ground and grow upward and become more fruitful and productive. My wife is using one of these for her peas. Beans, squash, melons, and cucumbers can produce straighter, cleaner produce if grown on a trellis. Some vegetable plants reach a certain height and stop growing if they don't have a trellis. Their produce is more likely to rot or to become food for slugs. Trellises help prevent disease. I would encourage you to build a trellis for your life. What do I mean? For us to grow healthier and stronger spiritually, to produce better produce, we need a trellis, a framework that supports our growth, that guides our growth. We need an intentional, conscious plan to keep God set before us at the center of everything we do. Very few of us have a plan to grow spiritually. We find ourselves drifting and distracted, even trying to live off of the spirituality of others. Most of us are on autopilot, just trying to survive the red tape season of our lives. We're guided by crammed schedules, endless to-do lists, own information overload, anxieties that drive us. We're not receiving God's counsel. The trellis provides a metaphor for how we can structure or order our lives so that we are focused on our greatest inheritance, God himself. When we live to nurture our walk with Jesus, we take time to worship. We can use YouTube, Spotify, or replay a Willingdon worship service. We set apart daily time to read and meditate on God's Word and allow it to enter our thought patterns and feed our emotions. We dedicate a Sabbath day to focus our life on God. We can even use part of our vacation to get away, to pray, and set the Lord before us. We should certainly nurture relationships with others to help us stay on the trellis. Here's a really good summer read to help you build your trellis. God in My Everything by Ken Shigematsu, lead pastor of 10th Church. Pick it up and read it. In verses 9 through 11, David continues to list the gifts of God, the gifts of having God as his inheritance. In verse 9, we read, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. A few words require explanation. Sheol, it's a name for the destination of the unfaithful, the dwelling place of those who turn their backs on God. It's a place of total isolation and complete separation from God's presence forever. There is no hope of return. 
It is complete and permanent separation from God and from those who love him. That's hell. These verses begin with therefore. David is full of confidence and joy because God is his refuge, his master, his provider, his counselor, his everything. His greatest inheritance, his ultimate treasure. He has made God the foundation of his life and he has not been disappointed. God has gone before him, stood beside him, and upheld him. Therefore, David's heart is full. God has made known to him the path of life. His body and soul will not be abandoned at death to suffer in hell or simply decay. God cares for him in life and in death. God will, he will be with God forever where there is unending joy and pleasure. Death is not the end, but a door. As he passes through the door, he will walk into life forever. The pleasure experienced in this life will be experienced fully in the world to come. David will continue to play the infinite game forever. He exclaims, God is my life. In the book of Acts, chapter 2, Peter applies Psalm 16 to the resurrection of Jesus in his sermon. In a similar speech, Paul also refers to Psalm 16 in Acts 13. David's words in Psalm 16 speak prophetically to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, the ultimate faithful servant, he came to earth. He identified fully with us as a human, was obedient to God the Father right to his death, and was resurrected from the dead. Death could not keep him down, Peter exclaims in Acts 2. In the same way, death will not be able to keep down those who identify with Jesus, those who turn from their independent ways, confess their sin, and turn to Jesus as Savior and Lord. They will rise. They'll be gifted with life now and forever. This is their sure hope. Jesus makes known the path of life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. We are to journey through this life, through this red tape season, following his way, living by his truth. And if we remember the meaning of the rope analogy and build a trellis for our spiritual journey, worshiping, praying, feeding our hearts and minds with his word, walking with others who are on this path, we will find God to be our master, our everything, our chosen inheritance our strengths, our counselor, we will find ourselves on the path of life. What game are we playing? Are we just doing our own thing and living as if this season is all there is? Or are we playing for this? Do you want to Surrender your heart to Jesus. Follow him and play for this. If you want to do that today, if you sense the Holy Spirit drawing you to surrender your heart to Jesus, the invitation is from God. And so receive it. Respond. Pray with me. Father, I thank you that you love me so much. 
Thank you, Jesus, for coming and identifying with me. Thank you that you went to the cross and you died in my place. You took my sin upon yourself. You paid the price I could never pay. And so today, Lord, I just want to surrender my life to you. I'm turning from my own way. I'm turning from a life apart from you. I'm tired of doing my own thing, and I want to follow you, Jesus. Jesus, I need you desperately. I confess my sin. I ask you for forgiveness. I ask you, Lord, to be my Savior and to come abide in me. Send your Holy Spirit to live within me. I need you to follow you. I want to know you. So, Lord, I surrender my life to you. I ask you to teach me and guide me forward. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, I'd encourage you to, connect, to, to click the I commit myself to Jesus button. We would love to connect with you and help you on your way. Now let's transition to the Lord's Supper. I'll pass it over to Pastor Jordan. Hello, church. Today we get to celebrate taking the Lord's Supper together. In Pastor Ray's sermon today, he mentioned John chapter 6, verse 35, and Jesus says these words, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Later on in that same chapter, Jesus expands on this statement while he was teaching in a synagogue. Jesus said to the synagogue, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. This is one of the most cryptic and challenging teachings that Jesus ever delivered. It's no wonder why so many of his followers left him after he said this. I mean, does Jesus really want his followers to eat his body and drink his blood? Apart from Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper, which we are participating in today, this teaching does not make a whole lot of sense. But before Jesus' death, During his last supper with his disciples, he took a piece of bread and a cup of wine and explained his purpose in coming to earth. Jesus took the bread and said that it represented his body, which was about to be broken, tortured, and humiliated on a Roman cross the following day. He endured such abuse to make known to his disciples and the world that though he is God, he was willing to suffer immensely on our behalf, to identify with us in all of our sufferings. He also showed the humility of God, that as our creator, he was willing to subject himself to being tortured and killed by his own creation, namely us, in order that we may receive the gift of eternal life. Jesus allowed his body to be broken on our behalf. And upon his death and resurrection, he invites us to eat bread 
the eating of his body to remind us that he died on our behalf and that all of us who call Jesus Lord are members of his one body. We are united in Christ. Let us take the body of Christ together. After they ate the bread, Jesus then took a cup of wine. He said it represented his blood, which was shed so that our sins may be forgiven. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The only way that humanity's evil thoughts, desires, and actions could be completely forgiven is if God himself shed his blood for us. His own death, his own blood being poured out was the only thing powerful enough to forgive all of our guilt, remove all of our shame, and conquer all of our fear. By pouring out his blood on the cross, Jesus committed to freeing us from the weight and destruction of the evil in our lives, saving us from death and giving us eternal life instead. By taking the cup that represents drinking his blood, we are declaring that we need and receive what Jesus did on the cross. We receive perfect relationship with God and the abundant eternal life that God always desired for us to have. Let's take the cup together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are so good to us. We think about what you did on the cross, how you came to earth, took on flesh, became as one of us. You gave up your life. You poured out your blood so that we could be restored in relationship to you, God, and have the eternal life that you always wanted us to have with you. I thank you, God, that today, even though we are geographically distanced, that we can participate in the Lord's Supper together. As we eat this bread, we are reminded of your body. As we drink this cup, we are reminded of your blood, Lord Jesus, and that we are united in the practice of the Lord's Supper as one body, as one family, one church. And for that, we praise you. Lord, we give you our lives. We give you our everything. Would you lead us every day from now till when we see you face to face? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.